You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. All right, well, good morning again, Creekside. Good to see all of you. If you're joining us in the live stream, welcome. So glad you joined us. My name's Jeff, one of the pastors here. And hey, if it's your very first time with us, thank you for gathering, worshiping with us. We have a gift for you that we'd like to give you if it's your first time with us, a sippy cup or a tumbler or a water bottle, and you can get that over at the info desk after the service. If it's your first time, that is our gift to you. If you'd like more information about our church or there's something we can be praying about for you, there should be a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, and put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. Would love to see all of you back here on Christmas Eve in person this year, which will be great. Um, yeah, I'm just so grateful to be back together for that. So please come, bring your friends, bring your family. We'd love to uh, have you there. You know, I was thinking this week back about uh, my college experience and really how college can be a make-or-break time for people. Often the, the trajectory of our life is set during those years, and, and I think that's true spiritually as well. I, I've noticed that for lots of people, college is either the time where they really get serious about their relationship with Jesus or abandon Jesus entirely. And praise God, my experience in college was the former. I grew so much in college, and that was largely due to the friends that God gave me. And one friend in particular, who I met right at the outset of my freshman year, and this guy challenged me like no one I'd ever met to grow in my understanding of God's Word. And we would spend hours arguing about the Bible watching YouTube clips of people arguing about the Bible, discussing the Bible late into the night, and I grew so much. Uh, sadly, while it was a making point for me, it was a breaking point for him. And uh, for a wide variety of reasons, this really good friend who knew the Bible as well as anyone I'd ever met, who was surrounded by godly, mature believers Ultimately, by the time he was done with college, was done with Jesus as well, and ended up making a, a shipwreck of his faith. And you know, as I think about it, one of the worst things about getting older as a Christian is watching people walk away. Because the older you get, the more times you are going to see it. And I hate it. I can't tell you how much I hate it, and I've noticed this in myself, that when people walk away from Jesus, I tend to walk away from them. I become emotionally distant, I detach, and sadly, that is what I did with this friend. And I came up with lots of reasons why I detached from him, and, and they sort of sounded good and biblical. But, but if I'm honest, the reason that I walked away from my relationship with him is because it was just too painful to deal with the reality that this person I loved so much didn't love Jesus anymore, and I didn't want to deal with it. You know, I was thinking about the church in America, and uh, even in a, a post-Christian society, apparently we're post-Christian now, just to let you know, we officially arrived there. 
even in a post-Christian society, a lot of people still come to Jesus. Reading about a church service this week, they did a Christmas play, 1,100 people professed faith in Jesus. I'm like, man, we should have done a Christmas play this year. 1,100, that's a lot of people. Still, a lot of people come to Jesus in America. Church has a big front door. Church has a big back door. A lot of people come, a lot of people leave. And I know for me, there is a tendency to focus so much on people coming in that I lose sight of everyone who's going out. I I have been guilty of this family. And the reality is, if we're going to imitate Jesus, we need to have the same kind of longing for people to come back to Jesus as we have for people to come to him in the first place. And go to great lengths to win them back and rejoice when they do. So today we're we're wrapping up our series on the letter of James. So we'll let up for you in a few weeks. Just the sledgehammering will stop here. Next week, Greg will be continuing his, we joke with him, it's an annual series. He always preaches the last end of the year. So it was annual series and excited for you to hear about uh, what he has to say about anxious hearts during this time. And then in January, we'll jump into a brand new series and we're just calling it Reset because we want to reset and recommit to our priorities as a church as we come out of COVID. And yes, I said that, come out of COVID. We're going to keep coming out of COVID, okay? But today we finish James, and as we've seen, James is addressing a problem that's really endemic to us as believers, and that's spiritual double-mindedness. All of us have a tendency as believers, even if we profess the right beliefs and, and do religious things, to wander from Jesus, and to become double-minded and, and, and sort of cordon ourselves off from him and refuse to give him lordship over different areas of our life. And so James helps us diagnose this and show us what a consistent Christian life, a pure Christian life, a life with integrity looks like where Jesus is Lord over every area of our lives. James calls that a perfect Christian life. In fact, he uses the word perfect seven times which is perfect, isn't it? Because that's the number of perfection in the Bible. And when James talks about our faith being perfected, he doesn't mean that we're sinless, but that we're single-minded, that we're pure and integrated, and our, our allegiance to Jesus actually changes what we do in each area of life. And so you can think about this whole letter as James diagnosing these areas where we will wander away, and he helps bring us back. Here's an area where you're gonna wander away, Come back. And now at the end of the letter, James, who's been kind of bringing us back in all these areas, he encourages us to imitate his example and help bring other people back. He ends the letter in an interesting way. He just says this, my brothers and sisters, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James tries to keep us from wandering, and now he says, imitate my example, help bring people back. Bring them back. James says some Christians are going to wander from the truth. That's the truth of the gospel, the core of what we believe as Christians. Sometimes people are going to believe by intellectually rejecting it. Sometimes they're going to wander away by just rejecting Jesus' lordship over their life. They just want to do what they want to do, 
In either case, this rejection is a serious matter. The, the fancy theological term for this is apostasy. And, and James says there are people in your congregations who are either formally rejecting Jesus or they are drifting in that direction where they are believing things and behaving in ways that are going to lead them to reject Jesus entirely. And James assumes here that we, the body of Christ, have a responsibility to go get them and to bring them back. So three things about seeking the strays today. First, embracing our role. Second, encouraging repentance. How do we help people come back? And then third, eagerly restoring and if we're going to become like Jesus, the good shepherd who seeks and strays the lost, we've got to be people who do this. I've got to be a person who does this as well, because this is the way Jesus seeks us. So as we jump in, let's pray. And um, I imagine if you walk with Jesus for a while, you know that person in your mind who's walked away, who you long to come back. So let's go to the Lord now and, and pray for those people. And ask God to teach us. And so, God, we bring our concerns before you and we bring those that we love. And we trust, Lord, that you do not stop pursuing. God, you do not stop pursuing us, so help us to imitate you and be the kind of people who win people back. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to get us when we stray. We need your help to do this, Lord. It is so painful. So give us your patient persistence and now teach us from your word. For your sake, amen. So, seeking strays. If you're going to do this, you have to believe you're responsible to do it, right? For a lot of years, I didn't think I was. Because I kind of thought, you know, faith is a personal thing. And if you've got a problem with your faith, that's your deal. I remember talking with a good friend of ours and of mine, and, and, and a friend of ours, a mutual friend, was struggling with his faith. And, and my, my buddy was really troubled by this. And he said, man, this guy is struggling and I thought he was solid. And you know what my initial, my initial response was to that? Nah, he's not that solid. You know what? I, actually, if you look at his faith, it was never that solid to begin with. And actually, this doesn't surprise me that much that he, he did this. In fact, you saw inconsistencies throughout his life that would kind of lead to this conclusion. And frankly, I'm not surprised that he ended up in that place. Now, that response, what is that response? Now, here's the thing. I was probably right about that. <laughs> I think I was right about this guy's faith. But my response was this, man, that guy's got a problem. He's walking away. Whose problem is it? It's his problem. He's got to go deal with Jesus and get that straightened out. Good luck. It's not my issue. And I think one of the byproducts of living in Western culture, which is, of course, very, very individualistic, is that we think of people's personal faith in Jesus as sort of a private thing. And if you're struggling in your faith, that's your private struggle. It's kind of the way we talk about health issues with people. Like, it sounds like something for you and your doctor to talk about, right? It's a private medical issue. You have a problem with Jesus, that's sort of your personal spiritual issue to talk through with Jesus. And if you've got a problem, you've got to go deal with Jesus about it. But, but that is so contrary to what James says here because he just assumes that you and me have a responsibility to seek out people who are struggling. Listen to what he says. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul 
from death. Who's responsible to go bring people back? You were doing really good at talking. Keep going. <laughs> Whoever, all of us, Whoever means anyone in the body of Christ who sees anyone straying from the faith. Whoever. And so when you see someone straying, it's not somebody's got to do something about this. I better go tell Jeff about that, right? No, if you have proximity to the person, it's, it's your responsibility. That person is your responsibility. You are your brother and sister's keeper when they go astray. And the promise here is astonishing because James says this, that a person who brings someone back and they're wandering will do what? Will save his soul. That's an astonishing statement, isn't it? Think about it. You go, you bring someone back, and still you subject, what do you? You save that person. Now you think, wait a minute, I thought God saves people. Yeah, but, but here's the thing. How does God save people? Through us. And here's something that hit me this week, thinking about this. It's not simply that God saves us, saves people through our preaching of the gospel. God keeps people saved through our preaching of the gospel. See, one of God's means of keeping us in the faith is each other. I think the natural question that, that comes up when we, we read a passage like this is, okay, well, these people James is talking about, these people who are in the church and they wander away, do they lose their salvation, right? Uh, were these genuine believers and then they sort of ditched Jesus and, and then lost their salvation and then when they come back, do they get their salvation back? Is that what he's saying? Or is James saying that these people weren't genuine believers, they were just part of the visible church and maybe they said the right things but didn't really believe in Jesus in their heart and then they leave and then they come back and now they really believe and weren't genuine believers. Do you see the difference? Now, this... this this uh, text doesn't answer that question. So moving on. No, I'm just kidding. No, so, so what does the New Testament teach about that? Well, I would say this, that, that the New Testament says this. When God saves us, he saves us. He saves us. He is the author of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. Salvation is ultimately of the Lord. It's his project. And unlike me, he has no unfinished projects. So if he begins salvation in someone, here's the good news, he will complete it. And the good news about that is that my salvation is not contingent on the quality of my faith on any given day. That's good news, isn't it? Because listen, if salvation was sort of this thing that like I could lapse in and out of and be like saved today and I don't believe and now I'm not saved anymore and I got to believe again to be saved again, like you better not have an off day, right? What if I go to bed in unrepentant sin and don't wake up? Right? That's terrible. If you want to create a neurosis in people, tell them that. Because ultimately, it's the quality of my faith that saves me and not the faithfulness of Jesus. And the good news is, according to the New Testament, that it isn't our fickle faith on which our salvation rests, but the, the faithfulness of Jesus. That's why Paul says... If we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. So that's the good news. When God saves us, he's the one ultimately holding on. He's not going to let go. At the same time, it is true that when God keeps us, he keeps us in the faith. So saving faith is a faith that will persevere, 
It will keep coming back to God over the long haul, so it might be fickle, it might falter, but it won't be finished. It's going to keep coming back to God. So God's going to keep us, and he's going to keep us in the faith. So a true believer will wander, will meander, but guess what? God won't let it happen too long. He's going to get them back, even if it's by the scruff of their neck, dragging them back in, kicking and screaming, which that's happened to me. (laughs) That will happen to you. If you're a believer, he's not going to let you go. Here's what I want you to see. What means does God use to come and get us? His people. His people. God keeps us in the faith by sending Christians to keep us in the faith. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, think about the two ideas that are put together there. The writer of Hebrews says that true faith holds firm to the end. How do we stay firm to the end? Exhort one another, encourage each other every day. Do you realize how much you need other Christians to stay in the faith? Like like we are not designed to make it on our own. Your faith will wither if you distance yourself from other believers. But conversely, what it means is this, that when I see someone straying, I cannot say, God, do something about it. Because what's God going to say? I will. I made you. (laughs) And I want to work through you. And I'm going to use you, so go get them. Go get her. Right? Just like we can't say, well, God's sovereign, so I don't need to pray. God's sovereign, so I don't need to obey. God's sovereign, so I don't need to share the gospel. Those are ridiculous statements. God is sovereign, and he will use you to bring people back. That's the wonderful promise. You're not alone in this, but God doesn't want to bypass you in the process. So we've got to embrace that responsibility. Someone's got to do something about it. Yep, the church. Go get them. So, maybe you say, okay, Jeff, I buy in. We need to win people back. How do you do it? That's the next step. How do you win people back? How do you encourage repentance? Well, James says this. He talks about our role as bringing people back. Literally, James says, turn them around. That's the biblical idea of repentance, right? To repent in the Bible just means to turn. You're walking in one direction away from God, you turn, you walk back towards God. Now, repentance obviously is a personal decision. A person needs to decide to bow their knee to Jesus to get right with them. But who helps them? We do. We have to help them turn around. And so you might ask, well, Jeff, how do you help someone do that? Well, I don't think you can help someone turn around until you understand the reason that they turned in the first place. You have to understand why someone would turn away from the church or turn away from Jesus and diagnose that issue before you can help them turn in the other direction. Uh, Josh Butler recently, he wrote an article that kind of gives a helpful taxonomy of the reasons people wander. And I'm going to steal it 
right now, because that's a lot easier than creating my own stuff. Um, I'm going to adapt it a little bit, because I think these are the four big reasons people wander. They're not the only reasons, okay? But they're the big ones. And until you understand the reasons and sort of how they interact with each other, I don't think we can give people the help they need to come back. You could say the first reason people walk away is this, the pain of disappointment. People walk away from the church because Christians can be terrible. Right? Terrible. They can treat people terribly. People who name the name of Christ can do horrible things to other Christians. In fact, they can do horrible things and think they're obeying the Bible, which is even more disillusioning. Right? As the bumper sticker says, Jesus, please save me from your followers. That's, that's some people's experience in the church. And Christians can hurt us very deeply, can even use the Bible to justify their mistreatment. And, and you know, I've been spared from that in large part, but, but I'll tell you, talking to other people, it is incredibly disillusioning to go through that process. Because you think, how could people who say this act like this? There's such a disconnect. And then the scarier thought underneath that, the scarier thought underneath that is this. Well, are they living consistently with what the Bible teaches? Like, are they just obeying the Bible and that's why they're treating me this way? And listen, if someone has been deeply wounded by the church, like, at that point, like, there's a response that won't work. And I've tried this response, just, just take my word for it, it doesn't work. Doing PR for the church doesn't work in that moment. Well, you know, not all churches are bad. In fact, I know a lot of great churches. In fact, I know a lot of wonderful Christians. In fact, look at church history. Look at all these, you know, right? No, that doesn't work because that's not their experience. They're dealing with the hurt that they have experienced. Nor does it help to say, well, Christians are sinners. Of course they are. They're wicked fallen human beings, just like everyone else. But, but the, the difficulty is the hypocrisy, right? It, how can they say this and emphasize this so much and, and, and treat me this way? And, and the only way to deal with this is compassion and consistency. And that's it. If you're dealing with hurt from other people, the first response is just to be sad that it happened and grieve and lament with them. And that's hard for me because I like to fix things more than anyone in the world. I want to give an answer that works. But it's just sad. It just needs to be grieved. And I love the scene in Matthew 9 where Jesus looks out at the crowds. And Jesus sees them and it says he felt compassion for them. And do you remember why he felt compassion? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus could look out at these masses of the people of Israel who had been shepherded badly by, by people who were exploiting them and abusing them and taking advantage of them and laying heavy burdens on them that they weren't willing to carry. And Jesus felt compassion. That's our, that's our response there. It's just compassion, lamenting it. And here's the other thing being a consistently faithful person in that person's life. Because you know the best way to counteract bad Christian community is just to be better Christian community. And if you have integrity and you walk with that person and show them what a, to walk with Jesus looks like over time, what do they have? They have this counterfactual to say, well, that's actually not true of all Christians. In fact, there are Christians who look like Jesus, and here's one of them. It's just compassion and consistency. So the pain of disappointment is real. It just takes patience. 
It takes compassion for what that person's been through. And then just consistent walking with Jesus to show that, you know, there really are Christians out there that aren't so horrible. Two, another reason people walk away, I would say, is the persistence of doubt. The persistence of doubt. They have intellectual problems and they don't know how to resolve them and they don't even know where to go to talk about the things they're grappling with. A few years ago, I was talking with a a person who was wrestling with doubt and and they said, Jeff, you are the first Christian leader I've met who was okay with people asking hard questions. And I I tell you that story so you'll be impressed with me. Um, I'm pretty great, right? It's like, no. I, I, I share that because I'm struck by first two things. First, it's, it's super common for believers to struggle with doubt. That's not like the abnormal experience. That's the normal Christian experience. All of the disciples struggle with doubt in the Gospels. It is incredibly common for Christians to struggle with doubt, but it is very uncommon for believers to share their struggles with doubt. That's a weird disconnect, isn't it? You'd read the Bible and think, wow, it's very common struggle with doubt, and yet it's very hard for Christians to talk about doubt. Kara Powell has done extensive research on doubt among young adults who are Christians, and she says about 70% of Christian high school students have serious doubts about their faith at some point or another, and yet only a quarter of those students say they have anyone in their life who they feel comfortable talking about their doubts with. And one of Powell's takeaways is this, and I've found it too. It's not exactly doubt that's toxic to faith. It's silence. It's the feeling that it's never okay to verbalize or vocalize or process or talk through these things because that means what? That I'm a sinner. That I don't have enough faith. But if you read the Gospels, doubt is a really normal thing Here's the other thing. Doubt is not necessarily opposed to faith. It's not. I like the way Tim Keller says it, that doubt can be like antibodies for your faith. Because the reality is this, that all of us have a faith that needs to grow and seek understanding and grow deeper in our knowledge of Jesus and his word. And sometimes we're given answers that work for a while and then they stop working. And when doubt comes in that moment, it might be a sign that we just need to dig deeper for better answers (laughs) and find what the Bible really teaches on this and come to our own conviction about it. And what's so interesting about Jesus, I love this. You know what Jesus doesn't do to people when they doubt? It's not like, well, just believe harder. (laughs) No, what does he do? He meets them in their doubt. Matthew 11 John the Baptist sends a message and says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for someone else? John the Baptist is doubting. What does Jesus say? Tell John what you see, that the blind have sight, the lame are healed, the poor have good news preached to them. Basically, he says, Isaiah 35, and what says about who the Messiah is going to be, all the boxes are going to be checked, John. Look at the evidence. Look at who I am. Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Jesus meets him in his doubt. And yes, he challenges them to believe. But he says, look at my hands. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And that's what's astonishing to me as you read the New Testament. The early disciples didn't believe in spite of the evidence. They were inveterate doubters who were overcome by the reality of the risen Christ and then came to follow him. 
And so the only way through this is reasoned discourse with people about their doubt. Because from its inception, the Christian faith has been a thinking, reasoning faith, and not a faith that squelches understanding, but one that seeks it. That seeks it. And when people are doubting or deconstructing, as the, that's the new cool word for it, is deconstructing. They have to come up with a cool word for the same thing in every generation. But when people are deconstructing, right, trying to pick apart what they've learned, look, that's not necessarily a bad process. That can be a process of growing. I mean, all of us have a tendency to, to just absorb things because the culture teaches them. And we have to go through a process of going, is that what Jesus actually teaches? That kind of deconstruction's good. Jesus does that, right? What, do you, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Here's a bunch of things you learned, Jews, from the law that were wrong. Here's what the law really means. That's deconstruction and reconstruction. What's the Protestant Reformation? The Reformers went back to the Word of God and said, there's a lot of cultural things here that were bad, that we've inherited about our views of God and salvation, and we need to deconstruct them and build them back on the foundation of God's Word and what grace really is. And so as people doubt and deconstruct, just ask questions. Well, well, what answer are you looking for? What do you think the Bible teaches about this? What have you been taught? What is your doubt? What kind of evidence would prove satisfactory to you to believe? Because the reality is this. If you're deconstructing, at some point you're going to have to reconstruct and build on a different foundation. And one of the things I find interesting about the way that, that young people deconstruct now is they want to deconstruct a lot of spiritual things, but then they're really confident about other areas of their life, like their politics or their social concern or whatever. And I'm like, well, you have to deconstruct that too, actually. What is your foundation? Right? You can't just exchange one certainty for another. You have to doubt all your doubts. Deconstruct your deconstruction. It's a hard process, isn't it? It's not so clear-cut. So, reason, discourse, patient, ask questions, honor people in their questions, take them seriously in their doubts. Because a lot of times they just need better answers and better teaching that the Bible can actually give. Next reason that people are tempted to wander is just the compulsion to disobey. Sometimes we don't want to follow Jesus because we don't want to follow Jesus. N.T. Wright famously said, he's a, a British scholar, that a lot of his colleagues began to discover problems with the Bible right about the time they discovered sex. Now, that isn't always the case. But often it's true that intellectual doubts give rise when we want to do what we want to do. And I've seen this time and time again because here's the thing. It is unpleasant and uncomfortable sometimes to have a concrete, personal, transcendent God who makes moral claims on your life. That kind of God is really specific and makes uncomfortable claims and it is easier to live under a God who is vague and mysterious and who is sort of a projection of your own desires. And so we have to ask, in our doubt, well, what do I actually want? Because what the heart wants, the mind will justify, right? And so we have to ask, is it just a matter of I don't want to do what the Bible says I, I'm supposed to do and what it means to live under Jesus' lordship and in that situation, again, it's going to take patient, question-asking, listening, gentle correction is the response. It sounds like Jesus wants you to do something that you don't want to do, and so we have to go back, do we believe that he's good? And gently restore them, as Galatians 6 says. 
And you know why we have to do it gently? Because the reality is we are all prone to do the exact same thing. Notice what this says. If anyone wanders, anyone can wander. All of us are prone to wander. And so when we bring people back, say, listen, I'm not just trying to castigate you or come down with you. I know how real these temptations are, but let me tell you how good Jesus is. And just because you want this thing, don't use that as the excuse to ditch Jesus. This thing is fleeting. Jesus is not, right? Final reason people can wander is just the pressure of disapproval. Pressure of disapproval. Um, if it's not socially acceptable to be a Christian, it's harder to be a Christian. So the reality is, some people are not going to like the fact that you follow Jesus. And when that happens, we are social creatures and we like to have views that are socially acceptable. And you say, no, we don't, Jeff. And I'll say, you're lying. You're lying. It is hard to have a view that's out of the norm. Right? That's why whatever people think about COVID... They have to run to their part of the internet that confirms what they already think, right? Yes, I, I'm sane, I'm the smart one, this is what I think, this is how we should respond. I need a tribe around me that thinks this way. We are social creatures and it's really hard when people do not confirm our biases. And we have to ask, is it just that I don't like to be on the outskirts of something? And then that's an invitation to discipleship because what does Jesus say in Matthew 16? That if you come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, and just remember this is always going to entail a death to self. Always. Always. And the, the thing that helps me in remembering that too is that the reasons that culture will hate Christianity are going to change every five years. You realize that? Like, like the reasons people hated the early Christians, we'd think that culture was foolish. How could they hate Christians for that reason? Well, that's because the culture got Christianized. And the reasons people hate Christians right now will be different in five years. Culture's always changing. Jesus doesn't change. And so there's always going to be areas where the culture affirms what Christians believe and tries to tear down what Christians believe. That's not going to change. There's always, if it's not one thing, it's going to be another, all right? So it's just an invitation to take up your cross and bear the reproach of Christ. So, the reality is all four of those things are going to interconnect and work together for a lot of people, which means it's going to take what? Patience. Listening, talking, persistence to bring someone back. And so you say, Jeff, what happens when someone does come back? How do we respond? We should be the most excited people in the world whenever someone makes the slightest movement back towards Jesus. And I think that's what James means when he says that when we bring someone back, we cover a multitude of sins. What does it mean for us to cover a multitude of sins? Well, James borrows that phrase from Proverbs, and what it means in Proverbs to cover a multitude of sins, let's look, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 17, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats in matter separates close friends. What does covering an offense mean? It means this, that when you come back to me, 
And when you come back to Jesus, you don't have to rehearse all your failures to me. You don't, we don't have to relitigate all the reasons you walked away. We don't have to pour any shame on you or, or prove that you're really sorry. We just say, I am so grateful that you are back. And, and whatever the reasons were that you were gone, they don't matter. I'm just so happy to have you back. And when we do that, who do we look like? Jesus. I was thinking about Matthew 18 this week, and, and I love what Jesus says, and, and you'll see why it's pertinent in a second. He says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any of these little ones should perish. Now we know Luke's version, right? Where the shepherd goes and gets the sheep and he's so delighted at the one that he, he puts it up on his back and rejoices he's coming back because that sheep is so valuable to him. And there it's a lost person coming home for the first time, right? It's a lost person coming home to God. And how delighted God comes when someone comes to him. But you know, we hear that and we ask this question, right? It's great when the lost are found, but what happens when the found are lost? And then are found again. How does God respond when they come back? That's what Jesus is talking about here. Because in the context, you know who the little ones are? If you read Matthew 18, the little ones are disciples who stumble, who fall away from Christ and come back. And how does the Father respond? How does Jesus respond? With the exact same joy and jubilation as when they were first God's mercy is new. God is thrilled when you come back. There's no relitigation, no recrimination, none of that. Just like in the prodigal, the prodigal son, right? You better explain to me how you've wasted. No, kill the fattened calf. Get the best robe. It's time to celebrate. That is how we should respond. And, and honestly, I think about my own life, and that's how people have responded to me when I've failed royally. And um, I don't know where I would be without that. Tell you a quick story, and, and then we're, we're almost done. Uh, in high school, I, I had my first big sin. Right? You have little sins as a kid, and then at some point in middle school, high school, you start to commit the big ones. And you know, like, that was bad. And for me, it was bad. And, and what made it worse is that I was a hypocrite. And I was leading Bible studies, and, and I was the most zealous corrector of false doctrine and bad behavior. And I was in deep, persistent sin, and I was absolutely double-minded. And I knew I was living a lot. And I knew I had to tell someone about it because I was suffocating under it. Because the Holy Spirit won't leave you alone. And I remember being at summer camp and it was, you know, the night, the night to confess all your sins. And everybody was confessing and I'm like, nope, not going to do it. 
because I was too prideful to tell these guys that I had discipled what I was dealing with. And, and I remember it was a total make or break moment for me, but walking around Hume Lake with, with my counselor there and pouring out my heart in things I was absolutely humiliated about. And, and honestly, hearing Brian Nesmith say to me, I'm just so glad you're telling me this. Thank you. And then the way everyone around me responded. You know, I don't know what would have happened in that moment if they had responded differently. Because they went and brought me back when I was slipping and backsliding. And the way my immediate family responded, the way my extended family and you responded, it, it was something that saved my soul. Eagerly restore. Eagerly restore. There's nothing more beautiful than watching someone come back home. Um, let's get back to the real reason we don't do this. Here's the real reason I, I don't do this. It's just too painful. It just hurts too much to keep pursuing people who aren't, don't want Jesus. Um, but we can't become like Jesus unless we learn to do this. Spurgeon said it like this, I hope we're this as a church. If sinners will be damned, at le least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. I hope that's us. And that if you walk away, we can't save you. But you will never doubt how much we loved you and longed for you to come home. And that's how you become like Jesus. Because think about this. John 13, at, at Jesus' last meal, he knows Judas is going to betray him, right? He knows Judas is going to leave and walk away. And whose feet does Jesus wash? Judas's feet. Who does he give the place of honor to at the banquet? To Judas. Who does he offer the bread to? Judas in fellowship. Jesus is unrelenting. And we grow in learning the fellowship of Christ's sufferings by pursuing people who walk away. And yet, at the same time, I have so much hope as I read this because the assumption James makes here is that when we go get people, they come back. People do come back. They do. And I'm, I'm happy to say that I've, I've rebuilt my friendship with that friend in college. Um, I don't know if he's closer to Jesus. He might be. But man, there have been some sweet times and some sweet conversations, and it is painful, but I'd rather have that because that teaches me to be like Jesus. And I take comfort in the fact, what we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus came. Why did he come? To seek and save the lost. Those who are lost and need to be found, those who got found and appear to be lost again. Jesus is unrelenting and he is mighty to save even the most backslidden, relapsed, stiffened neck, hardened, don't want to come back to Jesus at all person.
And if that's true, then we need to follow his example. All right, let's pray. So, Jesus, we thank you that um, when we were sinking down, you laid aside your crown, and you came to get us.